It's Thursday, September 22nd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today is the first day of fall, by some definitions. Everything you need to know about the equinox, plus some seasonal music recommendations. An app that you can only use when your phone's battery is less than 5%, and why Queen Elizabeth II and other royal family members are buried in lead-lined coffins. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Today is officially the first day of fall, at least astronomically speaking, and in the northern hemisphere. Today is the first day of spring in the southern hemisphere, and when you celebrate the equinox could actually be today or tomorrow, based on what time zone you're in around the world. But generally speaking, an equinox to mark the changing of seasons is here, and all around the globe today or tomorrow, people will be experiencing an even split of 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness, more or less. Equinox comes from the Latin equus for equal and nox for night, and it occurs when the sun crosses the celestial equator, an abstract projection of the Earth's actual equator line out into space. So when the sun crosses the line from north to south, here in the northern hemisphere, we get the autumnal equinox, and when the sun crosses the line from south to north, we get the spring equinox, or vernal equinox, and in the southern hemisphere, it's reversed. These equinoxes are basically the complement to the solstices, when the tilt of the Earth is at its maximum toward or away from the sun, giving us the longest and shortest days of sunlight in late June and late December. Or put another way from NPR, quote, On the day of an equinox, the Earth is tilting neither toward nor away from the sun, and therefore receives almost an equal amount of daylight and darkness, according to the National Weather Service. At places along the equator, the sun is directly overhead at about noon on these days. Day and night appear to be equal due to the bending of the sun's rays, which makes the sun appear above the horizon when it's actually below it. During an equinox, days are slightly longer in places with higher latitudes. At the equator, daylight may last for about 12 hours and 7 minutes, but at a place with 60 degrees of latitude, such as the North Pole, a day is about 12 hours and 16 minutes." End quote. So yeah, not exactly 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness, and not even all around the world. From the Washington Post, All places on Earth actually see more than 12 hours of daylight on the equinox. Washington sees about 12 hours 8 minutes of daylight on the equinox. Sunrise on Friday, the first full day of fall, is at 6.56 a.m., and sunset is at 7.03 p.m., However, the equal lux, the day when sunrise and sunset are closest to 12 hours apart, happens a few days later. In most of the United States, the equal lux is September 25th or 26th. Not until March 17th will the sun again grace our skies for at least 12 hours. End quote. Thanks for that reminder, Washington Post. Climatologist Brian Brettschneider has been posting maps on Twitter showing about how many minutes of daylight each region in North America will be getting on the equinox today. Link in the show notes if you're curious. 
And speaking of the approach of winter, the rate of change for loss of daylight accelerates around this time and is different depending how far you live from the equator. So as the post points out, throughout September, a place like Miami, Florida will see a minute and a half less of daylight each day while a place like Anchorage, Alaska will lose more than five and a half minutes of daylight each day. And by the way, I said this was the first day of fall astronomically. According to the meteorological definition of seasons, fall began on September 1st. The meteorological definitions are based on temperature cycles and the Gregorian calendar, as opposed to Earth's angle relative to the sun, so each season starts neatly at the start of the month, and does match up with what we tend to think and feel more culturally. Spring, for example, starts on March 1st and ends May 31st. Winter starts December 1st and ends February 28th or 29th. So the astronomical calendar is more for us pedants. And for many spiritual practices now and throughout history, you know, there have been many ancient structures discovered that line up in practical or stunning ways with the equinoxes and solstices. The Intiwatana in Machu Picchu, the Chichen Itza in Yucatan, the megalithic temples in Malta, and of course Stonehenge in England. And autumn festivals around the harvest moon and the equinox are common as well, like the Mid-Autumn Festival in Chinese and Vietnamese communities. This year the festival and the moon happened back on the 10th. The harvest moon is always the name given to the full moon that occurs closest to the fall equinox, either before or after, and is named because it was a full moon that gave a bit more light to farmers finishing their harvests when the days started getting shorter. Especially as someone who grew up in a part of the world where the changing of the seasons was less evident, I find all observations and celebrations of them endlessly fascinating. It's cool to get in touch with the natural world and to learn about how our ancestors celebrated these times. Just as they used quarterly festivals to break up monotony, to gather in gratitude, and to find pockets of joy during times of hardship, so too can we do all of those things. And in lives that are so filled with stimulation and obligations, glued to screens and living much of our lives indoors, it can be extra meaningful to break away and pause, reflect, literally touch grass or some yellowing leaves. If you want to hear me wax poetic even more about autumn, I'll put a link in the show notes to last year's episode on the first day of fall in which I talked a bit more about ancient customs and shared a selection of autumn-themed poetry. For this year, I want to leave you with a few music recommendations. First is more of a music video recommendation. A friend shared with me a great video posted recently that features my all-time favorite song to listen to this time of year, Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult, except all the images in this video are AI-generated images created by plugging each line of lyrics into Midjourney. It elicited some beautiful and creepy images that just really works. It is well worth a few minutes slowing down to really enjoy. And if you want more tunes, Matthew Perpetua, longtime music blogger, like OG blogger crowd, his Flux blog started in 2002, put out a nearly seven-hour-long playlist called This Was Autumn 1991. He describes it as a flashback to the Q4 that changed everything. In his newsletter, he further wrote, quote, 
This is a pivotal moment in music history, particularly for rock music, as several game-changing blockbusters all hit around the same time. This isn't a full picture of the musical revolution of the early 90s. Garth Brooks hit a little earlier, and I can't feature him because he's not on streaming. Mariah Carey broke a year prior and was hitting her stride in 91, and a sea change for rap would happen around Dr. Dre's The Chronic and the Wu-Tang Clan's debut in 1993. But still, this is a clear pivot point, and in this playlist, you can hear the aesthetics of the 90s really click in. End quote. The epic playlist kicks off with Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit and ends with Mark Cohn's Walking in Memphis. In between, you've got Super Chunk, Pavement, The Pixies, Queen Latifah, Salt and Peppa, Marky Mark, Paula Abdul, Susie and the Banshees, Lenny Kravitz, NWA, Boys to Men, Morrissey, and so much more. It is a pretty solid playlist. Perpetua's got links to listen on Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube, all at the Flux blog link in the show notes. Definitely give Perpetua a follow on your platform of choice if you're into music. He drops enormous retrospective playlists on the regular and provides really good commentary to go along with them. Now, I don't claim to be as good or knowledgeable a curator as Perpetua, but I will also drop a link to what I call my Halloween Light playlist. There's some songs on there that you might put on more of a spooky October playlist, but for the most part, it is songs that I feel hit on the mood of fall. It's got some Echo and the Bunnymen, Donovan, the Rolling Stones, the Cranberries, the Smiths, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, that sort of thing. And one more music wreck, Weezer has been putting out seasonal albums all year long, and their latest, Autumn, just dropped. Each album is stylized S-Z-N-Z for seasons, and this latest one is described as dance rock and inspired by, quote, indie sleaze sounds of the early to mid-aughts, end quote. Their winter EP will be out, of course, on the winter solstice. Well, speaking of autumn and its many physical reminders about the temporality of life, in our modern world, you don't necessarily have to watch the dropping of decaying leaves to ponder your own mortality. You face such themes every day when seeing your phone battery drain down and ultimately die. One app doesn't want you to be alone for such an experience. Die With Me launched back in 2018, but for some reason is getting another boost of popularity at the moment. At the time of recording, it's sitting at number three on the paid entertainment apps category in the Apple App Store. Now, the idea of Die With Me is simple. It's a chat room app that you can only access when your phone battery is at less than 5%. You can spend those last few dregs of battery commiserating with others awaiting the same fate as you. Instead of using your phone's last breaths for anything useful you might have been trying to do when the battery ran down all the way. In the years since launching, they incorporated a payment tier that kind of takes the fun out of the whole situation, but if you are willing to cough up a dollar to try an app that hasn't been updated in three years, go for it. It's on the Google Play Store as well, although the developer's website lists it as a project that lasted from 2018 to 2022, so further updates are probably not coming unless this mysterious boost in popularity pushes them to dive back in and give the app a shine. 
Regardless, it is a pretty interesting concept, and an old Vice article about it led me to another sort of anti-tech-ish project by Chris Bolin, a website, and eventually newsletter, that is only accessible offline. Bolin started the initial website, just a page attached to his main personal site, back in 2017, and then expanded it out to the Disconnect newsletter. Now, while you need to be online to initially type in the URLs of the sites, once you're there, the website prompts you to turn off your Wi-Fi, and you cannot see the rest of the website content until you do so. The newsletter hasn't been updated since 2019, but the content is still up there for you to read once you turn off your Wi-Fi. Boland told Vice in 2017 that the sites work because your browser has the ability to notify a web page when something like going on or offline happens. Quote, basically, a lot of browser innovation has gone into supporting what's called offline first, usually mobile devices that have shaky internet connections. So I decided to turn it on its head and create an offline only page. End quote. As for his point in making the website, apart from it being a kind of cool trick, Bolin wrote on the main site, quote, To maintain a constant connection to the internet is to maintain a constant connection to interruptions, both external and internal. It's the internal distractions that are truly pernicious. You can mute Twitter notifications and log off from Slack, but how do you stop your own mind from derailing you? What if certain content required us to disconnect? What if readers had access to that glorious focus that makes devouring a novel for hours at a time so satisfying? What if creators could pair that with the power of modern devices? Our phones and laptops are amazing platforms for inventive content. If only we could harness our own attention. How many articles have you left half-read because you chased a shiny underlined link? When you're offline, right here is the only place you can be. I can already hear the groans, but I have to be online for my job. I don't care. Make time. I bet the thing that makes you valuable is not your ability to Google something, but your ability to synthesize information. Do your research online. Create offline. Now back to your regularly scheduled internet. Just remember to give yourself an occasional gift of disconnection. End quote. So chat with other strangers while your phone dies and kill your router for a few minutes to read an offline webpage. They'll both be back again later, but maybe you'll have found a moment of silence or reflection in the meantime. And honestly, that's more than most of us can say most days. I guess I'm on a bit of a mortality kick today because the last segment I've got for you is about Queen Elizabeth II's coffin and other royal corpses of yore. Specifically, why it is that so many members of the British royal family had coffins lined with lead. Is it so no one can ever dig them up? Like Shakespeare, whose gravestone's epitaph literally reads, Cursed be he that moves my bones, because the playwright was so worried about grave robbers. Or perhaps the lead-lined coffins are so that the undead royals themselves can't escape. The truth is a bit more mundane, but one potentially contributing fact of history that I'll get to is pretty horrific. So like other fancy people, Queen Elizabeth will be interred above ground. In her case, her coffin was entombed in a vault in Windsor Castle alongside her parents, sister, and husband. In the United Kingdom, when a body is interred above ground, it is legally required for the coffin to be lined with lead to assist with preservation, at least according to IFL Science. 
The main gist of that is certainly true, particularly before modern preservation techniques emerged in the 19th century onwards, lining a coffin with lead was meant to help keep bodies of the deceased in better condition. Julianne Tadillo, a professor of history at the University of Maryland, told the Washington Post, quote, lead helps keep out moisture and preserve the body for longer and prevent smells and toxins from a dead body escaping. End quote. And continuing further from the Washington Post, quote, The preservation measures are reminiscent of those used for ancient, high-ranking Egyptians, who were also placed in chambers rather than buried in the ground, and whose bodies were immaculately preserved. Using lead coffins is a long-lived royal tradition, said Mike Parker Pearson, a professor at University College London's Institute of Archaeology. He said the embalmed corpse of King Edward I, who died in 1307, was found in 1774 to be well-preserved in his marble sarcophagus in Westminster Abbey. Pearson added that the practice of using lead was probably adopted around the time of Edward's death or in the century following it. End quote. A mental floss points out that Princess Diana and Prince Philip's coffins were lined with lead, as were many other royals, nobles, and other notable figures throughout time, like Winston Churchill and my ancestor, Sir Francis Drake. One royal who did not get such a dignified burial, however, was William the Conqueror. When he died following a battle wound to his intestines in 1087, none of his family members or people close to him cared enough to arrange his funeral because he had been so horrible to them. Quoting IFL Science, His body was left decomposing on a stone slab while waiting for someone to volunteer. Eventually, a knight did take it upon himself and transported the body a full 112 kilometers or 70 miles to Cannes to be buried, as the body continued to decompose. The king, no longer occupied with matters of rule, now whiled away the hours by accumulating gas through decomposition. Upon arrival, a fire in the city warmed the corpse up some more and kept those gases expanding. By the day of the funeral, it was too bloated to fit into the sarcophagus. Undeterred by basic physics, like a toddler trying to ram a square toy through a circle-shaped hole, the gravediggers attempted to cram him in there anyway. It was at this point that the body blew, and the swollen bowels burst and an intolerable stench assailed the nostrils of the bystanders and the whole crowd, according to Benedictine monk and chronicler Orderic Vitalis. The mourners got covered in dead king juice. End quote. Wow. Gross. So even though it requires extra pallbearers, I'm sure everyone in the immediate vicinity has been grateful for the extra measures taken with subsequent royal coffins. Well, all right, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 